Today's interview is from this summer, and unfortunately, there was a slight delay, and I didn't get it out closer to taking it. And so there's a conversation about the Ethereum merge and mining there that might seem a little odd, given that the merge has already happened. However, I kept it in because it's really interesting to see what we were thinking before the merge went through, and now we know what the future holds. Today's interview is with an early Bitcoin miner, a atypical early Bitcoin not the early tech adopter or cypherpunk that we generally imagine most early Bitcoiners to be. Instead, Malachi is the guy that the early tech adopters found to help them run mining. And he kept mining. And I think he has a really unique perspective that adds a lot of common sense knowledge that you can only get by doing a thing very well for 10 years. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. And I feel like there's more to come. Because just at the end, we touch on energy, we touch on ESG. He talks about how Bitcoin miners have in the past abused the electrical grid, but that's changing now. So I think future conversations might be in order. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I'm your Bitcoin Dad. And today I am interviewing, I don't know how to introduce you. A Bitcoin entrepreneur, a shadowy figure who is coming out into the light. <laughs> a normal guy who got sucked into the Bitcoin world. That's a great byline. Okay, sounds great. Today I will be speaking with Malachi Salcedo. That works. Yeah, I get called a lot of things. Mostly good. <laughs> I was waiting for the, uh, the punchline. Yeah. Now, how should we begin? What's the logical beginning of this story? I think my backstory is non-typical, and it helps set the stage for where I came from and why I'm doing what I'm doing. It also frames my expertise because I'm not a typical long-term Bitcoin participant. Okay, so why don't we get into that? Basically, what do you think the common perception of a typical Bitcoin OG or long-term Bitcoiner is, and how are you different from that? That's a hot question right there. Start out spicy. I usually start the story that the phrase, I didn't find Bitcoin, Bitcoin found me. So we're in central Washington state and this is my hometown where we live in Wenatchee, which is right smack dab in the center of Washington state on the Columbia River. I grew up here. I own a contracting and development company, been in business for 21 years doing contracting and development in this region. And we focus in our contracting company on specialized project design, build, heavy mechanical, heavy electrical, any kind of space that's got critical products like bio materials, lab environments, communications environments, utility environments, data space environments, anything that if the systems go wrong, it costs a lot of money or kills somebody. Those are the kind of developments we work on. So late 2012, early 2013, if you know your Bitcoin price history, that's the pre-Mount Cox debacle run up. Early tech adopters from around the world came to this region, the central Washington region, because we have a string of hydroelectric dams on the Columbia River and a large surplus of power that we export around the Pacific Northwest and the Western United States. So would this be sort of the first wave of professional or semi-professional Bitcoin miners? So we're off CPU mining and now they're beginning to look for cheaper power? Yes, but I would strike the term professional from that description. So our background is, as described 
in development. We're used to working with conventional data space environments, which are very professional, structured. Companies either build their own data space or they pay for hosting services. And when early tech adopters first came to this region, it was shortly after ASICs were invented. So think like uh, Spondulies and ZoomHash and Butterfly. If you don't know those names, these are some of the earliest iterations of ASIC servers for Bitcoin mining. Right. And Butterfly was a huge debacle because they took everyone's Bitcoin and didn't ship that many machines to them and disappeared. Spondulies was acquired by Blockstream, I think after going bankrupt. Correct. There's a lot of attrition in this story. Yes. So 2012, 2013, early tech adopters flocked to this region because there was a run-up. ASICs had just been invented and were being put into machines. And these early tech adopters, some were from inside the United States, some were from around the world. And they came to this region and their first stop was the utilities. In many countries, you stop first at the utility, you bribe the right person, and then you go set up your power consumption. I'm sensing that didn't go so well over here. <laughs> no, it didn't. So in America, we have rule of law. Uh, you can't bribe a utility to get space faster or cheaper. So early tech adopters, they would go straight to the utility and say, where can I set up multiple megawatts of consumption for data space as fast as possible? And what do I need to write on this check? That would literally be some of the wording they would use. And the utilities would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have to go through a site selection process. You have to have engineering and architectural work done. You've got to get your permitting in place. You bring all that to us. Then we do an evaluation process. You pay fees. You wait for time. You have to have a complete design in place before we're even going to consider a power application request. Now, just for context, there's a reason that you have to go through this process. And it's not just because local government has a fetish for process and forms. I'm assuming that there are very good reasons why you want to go through all of these steps before you start building out data centers. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Building code, power codes, they're there for a reason, and it's to make sure things are done correctly. So the utilities would give them this you know, montage of, here's all the steps you have to go through, and they would say, who can help me with that? So we're the largest multidiscipline development contractor in this region, and the utilities would just point them toward us. So I started having these early tech adopters calling into our office, asking for pre-engineering engagements. And so our team started doing pre-engineering engagements, and we're used to getting weird applications that we don't fully understand. You take the specs, you take the customer's needs and any development processes, it's boiled down to how much is it going to cost and how long it's going to take. Usually costs too much and takes too long. And then you start working with them to figure out, is there a version of this that accomplish your goals that you can afford in a timeframe that works? And if they say yes, and you move forward and you develop these early tech adopters were not savvy in the development process. So we would take their specs. So you got to understand this is late 2012, early 2013. There is no media. There is no content that even describes what they're doing. They're just bringing me machines and I'm handing them to our engineers and saying, okay, we have to develop a spec around this. And it's this much more dense consumption of power. The machines are always on some kind of data processing. But at this point, there is no way to understand 
understand what's happening on the machines. We're just designing to a specification. Right. And it sounds like these ASICs that you were being handed, and these I think these were ASICs, they're different than the probably typical servers that are going into data centers that you'd worked on in the past. And is it just their energy density that was different or are there other aspects that surprised you at the time? There were several aspects that were very non-typical. One, they were about seven times the power consumption density, which also means they were seven times the heat output density. All conventional servers fluctuate with their energy consumption based on their use. These didn't. They were all on all the time in layman's terms. That's very non-typical and that's an entirely different engineering spec because virtually all electrical distribution systems that are designed and installed in a facility are for loads that shut down sometimes. Nobody leaves loads at scale on all the time, 24 hours a day at full consumption. Up until ASICs, that was a non-existent load profile. The closest you would get would be like an industrial process, like aluminum smelting, where they're consuming power constantly. But even that modulates full flat, non-modulating load, seven times the density of a normal server configuration. Those were the specs we were working with and we designed to them. So we would do site selection, say, okay, here are some places where you could create this. Here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how long it's going to take. And for those early adopters, we would do these pre-engineering engagements and it took too long and cost too much based on whatever expectation they had in their head. But it mostly took too long. There was a very much ride this horse till it dies mentality, which in some respects has not changed all that much. But this was really the first run. So the run up between fractions of a penny and a thousand dollars roughly, which is when Mt. Gox blew up. That was the first run in Bitcoin price. So now we can see multiple cycles and we'll talk more about that later. But these early tech adopters were talking a lot about the technology and they didn't want to wait. And I thought that was very fascinating. And I got curious, what is it that's actually happening on these machines? So at that time, there's no news outlet. The term blockchain wasn't even used. It was only Bitcoin was the only crypto at that time. The only place I could find information was an online chat forum called bitcointalk.org. So old timers will understand what that is. So I got on to bitcointalk.org. I didn't have much to say because I didn't know much. I mostly just read smart people, stupid people, people that had had too much to drink, typical chat forum. But in that context, I started to understand, okay, this is an encrypted code that is supposed to facilitate a direct peer-to-peer exchange of value. It eliminates a financial intermediary or middleman. It is distributed ledger technology. It replicates triple entry accounting, and it's supposed to be some new form of digital asset or value. That all mesmerized me. My background is in accounting and finance. So I'm a CPA. I have degrees in accounting and finance. And then I'm also a contractor and an entrepreneur. So an accountant, an entrepreneur, and a contractor all jammed into the same body, which makes for a pretty frustrating experience because I'm both risk-taking and risk-averse at the same time. But those backgrounds actually ended up being very well suited to the cryptocurrency space because I was instantly very fascinated with what this tech claimed it could do. And I came to the conclusion that Bitcoin was one of two things. It was either going to disrupt the financial exchange intermediary and settlement processes in conventional finance, or it was nothing. 
tech always follows a similar path. Technology provides a faster, cheaper, more secure way of doing something. It eliminates the middleman and it allows direct peer-to-peer interaction. This said it was going to do all of that for financial exchange and settlement, which is a multi-trillion dollar industry. So either the tech was going to fail or this was going to be huge because it's faster, cheaper, more secure. Why do we email instead of using the postal service? Why do we do a lot of things with tech? It's faster, cheaper, more secure, and it eliminated a middleman. If you have those attributes in an emerging technology, whatever you're trying to accomplish, the tech will either fail or it's going to make a new market. So I got really, the entrepreneur in me took over. And after three or four failed pre-design engagements where the client just wouldn't move forward with building a site, I decided I'm going to build a site. I know how to build this. I'm just going to build a site. We built our first site in 2014. So 2013, we're building it. By 2014, we're running it. It was a megawatt and a half, which just was this huge space at the time. So for a conventional data center that you have contracted with in the past, would you have megawatt and a half sites? Or is that like 6x what you would normally be putting into that site? Or So a good comp would be conventional data sites that we'd worked on. They may be designed for 20 megawatts, but they're only ever running two or two and a half actual megawatts at a time. It may fluctuate to three or four, but this was going to be a one and a half megawatt site that was consuming all of that power all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Before you said that this power profile is most similar to say an aluminum smelter. And that's really interesting because aluminum is described as condensed power, or it's a way to turn power into a physical resource. It's one of the early games to monetize electricity, like in Iceland, where they have an aluminum smelter that allows them to export their geothermal energy, otherwise never leave. So what happened with this first site? Did it did it go well and you never stopped? Or was it early technology and you maybe have some regrets? Well, we learned a lot. Regrets, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> I would say a mix. It was a necessary part of our learning journey. What we intended to do was build a site, complete it, sign up hosting clients like you would in conventional data. They would move in, plug in their servers, network them, and we would charge a fixed monthly lease plus other services. What actually happened was there were no viable tenants. So we would sign up tenants and they were early tech adopters. So early tech adopters were very into the tech application side of crypto, but not into the development and management of the hardware side of crypto. So these early tech adopters thought what they understood about how crypto works was the secret sauce and designing, building, and managing the spaces that run the servers was just what they could pick up along the way. It turns out they had it exactly backwards. Selecting, designing, building, and managing the space, it turns out is still the secret sauce or the hardest thing to accomplish in the space. Understanding the technology you can pick up as you go. So we sign up clients and they ended up not having a viable business plan, not having a long-term strategy, not being adequately capitalized. Their game plan was essentially get in there as fast as possible, ride the horse till it dies and get off. Two thoughts. One, as I recall, early generations of ASIC were obsoleted very quickly. And so when you talk about how they just want to get in and ride that horse, it sounds like once you get the hardware, you need to run it into the ground and you better run it into the ground because in six months, the next ASIC is going to come out and the hashing efficiency is going to be so great that you might as well throw your old ASIC into the trash. My understanding is that basically happened until the Antminer S9, which through a bunch of factors turned out to be the AK-47 of the (laughs) ASIC industry. 
Yeah, when we started, so 2012, 2013, 2014, that's before that rapid progression of efficiency. You're thinking 2015, 2016. So our biggest issue wasn't that the equipment had a short, useful life. It was we're running all these different manufacturers. The chip has just been invented. They're building out equipment and sending it out. It has all kinds of glitchiness issues. Actual consumption doesn't match specs, overheating. Uh, it was a lot of new, small manufacturers making a new kind of service as fast as they could with all of the expected problems. And then clients that we had signed up to host, when the price was up, they were running their machines nonstop, which was as agreed when the price went down. They'd shut their machines off. They'd stop paying their bills. I realized effectively I'm exposed to all the downside as the landlord and none of the upside. So we just sunsetted agreements 2014, 2015, moved everybody out. And I said, we're going to continue to build out space, but we're only going to self-mine until there are large viable tenants that won't just turn their equipment on and off when the market fluctuates. So from 2014, 2015 on, we were all self-mining until about a year ago. That's fascinating. It brings to mind something that Adam Back is always saying, CEO of Blockstream, which is also a company that does Bitcoin mining, that their secret sauce is it's about having enough capital cushion to run your machines when the price is down. And it sounds like like early miners hadn't figured that out. And so they spend all their money on machines and then they paid their electricity and hosting fees out of the Bitcoin they were mining, which as anyone who's been in Bitcoin a while knows is you really don't want to sell that Bitcoin too soon on receiving it. Holding it seems to be a much better strategy in long term. Can you comment on, on that thinking as a miner? Well, I agree. You have to be adequately capitalized. Whatever your business plan is, whatever your sector is, you have to be adequately capitalized to survive the down cycle so you can take advantage of the upcycle. When we went to self-mining, we continued to build sites. So we learned on the first site, we redid it three times. So with all of our contracting, development, design, and engineering background, it took us about three times to really get that site to where it's like, okay, this is actually the way to design this space, electrically, air movement, cooling. And once we had that down, we started building additional sites. So we have built six sites throughout this region. We're on our seventh. We manage approximately 35 megawatts of capacity. And we we still build basically that same design criteria and it's simple, but it's very effective. Our machines are 98, 99, 99.5% of total hash rate capacity 12 months out of the year, which is the ultimate test of how well our sites are performing. It's really interesting for you to describe those early Bitcoin adopters coming in, wanting hosting, and there's this idea that the software, the understanding of what's happening in the software is the secret sauce. And then they run into this brick wall of actual physical reality. Hosting is hard. Power is complicated. The economics are complicated. And it actually takes you, a professional, three times to get this kind of physical plan perfect. I feel like that's so Bitcoin because Bitcoin mining, in my understanding, is this incredibly clever activity. It's connecting this digital value exchange, this digital cash, this peer-to-peer -peer money with the physical world. And I think historically, proof of work is actually a very old idea. I would say gold coins are proof of work. A cathedral is proof of work. It's just that in the past generation, we've had money that's not proof of work. And so it's almost like we're discovering an old technology or practice again. What you're describing is in line with why I was attracted to what cryptocurrency asserts to be. So we mine Bitcoin. We've always mined Bitcoin. We run some hosting machines now and we self-mine because there are now large viable clients 
clients that we can host for. That makes sense for our business model to be directly exposed with some of our capacity and indirectly exposed with some of our capacity. But the attributes like you're describing are not new. Bitcoin is the first time in the modern era that we've had a consumer opt-in exchange of value option. Most people don't think about the fact that each country has their own sovereign currency and we don't get to choose whether we use USD. USD is what we get to use and we're blessed here. We have a relatively stable system compared to just about anywhere else. But Bitcoin is an opt-in exchange of value. And when I go to settle, I'll give you an example. We would buy our machines in bulk, manufacture direct. And at first we would send Bitcoin. And so I could send millions of dollars of Bitcoin and confirm receipt in three minutes and the transaction's done. But after a couple of purchases, the Chinese government would not allow Bitcoin purchases anymore for all the obvious capital flight reasons. So we had to take our Bitcoin, convert it to dollars, wire it through the SWIFT system, wait three to five days, then confirm that it had been deposited, and then our shipment would be released. That's a great real-world comparison of why crypto is so much more handy. So Overstock called their crypto efforts T0 or T plus zero versus T plus three days, which is a typical stock settlement process. Faster, cheaper, more secure, eliminates a middleman. We're continuing to see even early days. I'm describing purchases we were making in 2015, 2016. So purchasing something for millions of dollars with crypto internationally was pretty leading edge at that point. It's so handy, like three minutes versus three to five days. And the fees, as you know, are a tiny fraction of what conventional SWIFT settlement systems are. That alone is a great argument for utilization of crypto. With so much less uncertainty around clearance, I've also done that transfer to China. And it's interesting that Bitcoin miners were allowed to accept Bitcoin payments initially, because I imagine they had an issue getting their tax refund because, you know, export goods out of China generally get a 20% VAT refund, which is usually the entire profit of any manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So actually, had the CCP continued to allow that, maybe they could have accumulated some Bitcoin and they wouldn't be in such a mess today. <laughs> yeah, I think non-technical reasons why crypto is continuing on its journey toward broad adoption, which is what happens with any emerging technology. There's early adopters, there's a flushing out process, and then it moves toward broad adoption, which is, in my opinion, what's happening. With Bitcoin, we realized pretty early on that it made the market. So especially after the 2017, 2018 peak and correction. So that was the last cycle before the current cycle. After I watched that, it's like that was our second full cycle of Bitcoin. It's like, okay, it's really on a four-year set-your-clock-by-it cycle, which appeals to me because it's supply and demand. Supply and demand move until price is at equilibrium. That's basic economics. That's not a crypto thing. That's an economics thing. So the entire crypto industry industry moves around Bitcoin's orbit. And Bitcoin moves on a four-year cycle centered around the halving. And so after 2017, after I saw two cycles of that, it's like, okay, 2016 halving, 2017 run-up. That's exactly what it did last time. This entire industry, that price cycle is moving in direct correlation with the halving. So now what we do is we move in time with the market. The market moves so fast. So a four-year cycle with really a one-year boom and a two, two-and-a-half-year winter 
or trough, that is brutal for anything that's a capital project. So if you're building and creating permanent improvements for new real estate space or data processing, that's not your cycle. <laughs> so what we do is we don't try to change what the cycle is. We move with the cycle. And people will ask us questions like, how have you been around for almost 10 years? Well, it's because we move with the cycle. We build methodically as we have capital. When the boom happens is when we liquidate most of our crypto. We take the proceeds, we create more space, we improve it, and we expand. And that's really our cycle that we've been on for the last 10 years. A lot of learning, but it's really not rocket science. It's the artisan, the implementation. Now, the 2017 cycle was a little different, I think, from previous cycles, because before 2017, it was really just Bitcoin. But in 2017, we saw Ethereum really rise up. We saw the ICO boom. Seeing all of that and reading the pitch books and all the market research, is there a question in your mind? Did you think, oh, maybe these new projects are onto something? Maybe Bitcoin is going to be eclipsed by something else? What was your process? My process was very pragmatic. So Bitcoin had 60 some percent of the total market, then it had 50 some percent of the total market. And currently it's 40, 41 percent of the total market. So what I do is I try to keep my analysis very simple and based on fundamentals, not on what anybody's trying to sell. Give me any market, any market, and give me the lead market participant and then tell me what percentage of the market they hold. If it's in the 40s, 50s, or 60s, that's the one I'm going with. I've always considered Bitcoin the Microsoft of the cryptocurrency space, which means they weren't necessarily... Ouch. They weren't necessarily the best operating system, but they got so big so fast, nobody could catch them. My assessment is that's Bitcoin. It doesn't mean it's the only viable crypto project. It just means it still has a very large commanding market share. And more importantly, its network size so vastly eclipses all other cryptos. The natural follow-up question to that usually revolves around, so are you a proof-of-work guy or a proof-of-stake guy? I am a proof-of-work guy. You have to understand one, when I started, there was only one crypto. It was Bitcoin and it's proof of work. And people will ask me, why are you still proof of work? And my response is because proof of work is the most closely aligned with human nature. As broad adoption occurs in the crypto space, in non-technical terms, people don't want the crypto that won't be hacked. They want the crypto that can't be hacked. And proof of work is just basically saying, we're going to build a network so big that it's impossible to hack it. And that ends up being a more secure method for protecting exchange of value. If you're not going to have an intermediary, all of your trust is in that digital asset and its encryption. So if you look at a Bitcoin that people make to represent a Bitcoin, it says in Bitcoin, we trust, which is a play on words or in God, we trust. But it's also saying we trust the encryption. Like I will exchange millions of dollars in value, or I will put my value into that asset or a certain portion of my portfolio because I trust that encryption. I think Bitcoin is not the only viable. I believe. Ethereum's viable, I believe Ripple's viable. I believe there are quite a few others that are viable for certain use cases, but I don't think there's any other crypto that's going to be the default. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. I actually think that at some point in the future, when the Fed goes full-blown with a digital USD, I actually think they're just going to fork Bitcoin and keep it proof of work and use their own fork. I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up happening. That'll be the ultimate confirmation of my theory on Bitcoin in its place. Okay, well, 
out, you just threw me four curveballs. So we need to get into this. Okay, go for it. Ripple might be valuable. Help help me see that. Because when I look at Ripple, I see another Jeff McCaleb project. I think it's pretty well documented that Jeff McCaleb, who founded Mt. Gox, sold Mt. Gox to Mark Carpellis, and it was already bankrupt. It had already been hacked. Jeb hid all the evidence or didn't care to know. Moves on, founds a Ripple. Now, the, the data suggests, the SEC lawsuit suggests that Ripple is a company that knew they were releasing an unregistered security with XRP from a technical perspective. I know they've said that you don't look at it in this technical way, but from a technical perspective, XRP doesn't even have a consensus mechanism. It's basically a master node that Ripple runs, and this is kind of what orders the transaction. So, you know, using that system is basically saying, I think the Ripple Corporation is the best person to secure the blockchain, and they have a history of pumping and dumping on their customers. So do you see things differently or? Let me qualify. So the way you grimaced when I said Ripple was almost identical to the way you grimaced when I said Microsoft. <laughs> I'm not saying I support that solution. I'm just saying to date, they've had good success at selling themselves as the crypto for interbank settlements, for example. It's not decentralized. It's not even making a good case for being decentralized. So to date success, I'm not saying it's long-term viable or even that I support it. I own no Ripple. I've never owned Ripple. The only two cryptos I own are Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's all we run. And then we also run Zcash. Those three, like if you want my actions to to support my position. Those are the only three, but we've always been predominantly Bitcoin and probably always will be. Maybe it's time to start filming this podcast because, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just... I was making faces. You know, I'm, I'm a Linux person. Our listeners know that. Pretty harsh on Microsoft. I mean, there's a lesson for me here, which is this is just the state of the world and these things are true. And I agree with you entirely. Okay, so I think that most of our listeners are familiar with Bitcoin and Ethereum mining. One question about Ethereum mining is that the popular story is that Ethereum is GPU mined, mined using graphics cards, either consumer grade ones or, you know, sort of uh, compute graphics cards for data centers. But there is also a rumor there is an Ethereum ASIC. Now, can you confirm or deny the existence of this ASIC? I can neither confirm nor deny the experience of an ASIC. That, that thing in the corner, that's not an ASIC. <laughs> exactly. Pay no attention to that box in the corner. What will be interesting to see is whether Ethereum completely moves to proof of stake because that will change the economics. So if you're going to put in a lot of expense, R&D, production costs to build an ASIC, you need a long enough runway for it to pay back. Those are just business economics. It's been six years since they talked about proof of stake. I've been there for all of them. I, I held some Ethereum right at the beginning and then the DAO hack happened and I thought hmm, that might just be the end of it. And then Classic spun off or Ethereum spun off of Classic technically. And I thought, wow, if both of these make it, that would be incredible. That's like effectively a stock split. So as you know, the same thing happened with Bitcoin. Very fascinating, but I'm not a technical analyst. I'm a markets and practical analyst. So the more the asset acts like other conventional assets, the more I see viability. So broader adoption, it's a recommended minor percentage of a portfolio, one to 3% of an investment portfolio is now likely to have digital assets. And these are all indicators that we're still on the road to broad adoption. What happens with Bitcoin is because it moves on a four-year cycle and because supply is fixed, demand drives price all over the place. That creates market inequalities, but creates all of the froth and less savory participation 
participants that seek to capitalize on that unequal market activity. That's the boom and bust. A lot of the boom and bust was always fraud. Even in conventional markets, a lot of the boom and bust, it's actually fraud. It's not real value. It's not real output. It's fraud. It's not actually really there. That's a cleansing process for markets. We're in a capital market system. It is what it is. That's a cleansing process. It's encouraging to me because it just says, okay, this is on the road to broad adoption. And then as it gets further down the road of broad adoption, and you know, if I'd have told you four years ago, we'll, we'll hit three trillion of market valuation, and then the trough will be a trillion or 900 billion. Nobody would have believed, um, but that's where we are. So we're on the road to broad adoption. What happens with broad adoption is it's gravity. It's the reality. And the viable best crypto projects will be the wins. I feel like what you just said should probably be required listening for all retail investors. It just felt like very common sense. And what I usually do is I point out, okay, it's not just retail investors. Masayoshi San runs SoftBank. He lost like 130 billion in 2018. He sold his Bitcoin stake. If he had just held on to it, he'd have killed it. That's not a retail investor. That guy runs literally the largest fund ever. But he's like the ultimate retail investor. I mean, the, the way he runs his funds, it's like crazier than the GameStop Robin Hood crowd going to admit something here. I actually used to work for him. Not directly, like very indirectly. Okay. You know, he owns so much stuff that you might one day find yourself working for Masayoshi's son by accident. And uh, I just, that guy's like everything that's wrong with Fiat. He's an example. So that's the 2017 cycle. Mike Novokratz, who I like as a person, I think he's a salesman. He's also not a retail investor. He's a billionaire. He got Luna tattooed on his shoulder. He lost his shorts. He just keeps failing upwards. He's amazing. But the point is to the retail investor, See these guys who should have every access to every piece of information and market inside information. They lose billions or hundreds of millions when they try to outsmart the market. So if you think you're outsmarting the market, you're going to get burned because even those guys got burned. Investing in a market is not about market timing. Market timers are called casualties in a market. There are students and there are casualties in a market. In this market, you take positions in viable projects and you hold them or hodl them if you're into the slang. I'm so old. I was on BitcoinTalk.org when that happened. I was, was going to ask you, <laughs> yeah. when you said people have had too much to drink, I immediately thought of the yeah. hodl post. I remember when that started getting repeated. I'm so goofy, obviously stuck. But the point is you don't try to time this market. It moves with great volatility. And so like all investing, you have to have a set criteria. What are your investment objectives? What's your risk profile? There's nothing new under the sun. You need to create a portfolio that matches your objectives and you stick to it. You don't watch the charts. You don't move your sales positions all over the place. You don't buy into the newest crap coin that's shooting the moon or you're going to get burned. And newsflash, buy low, sell high. Okay. So when Bitcoin was at 60 or 65, you should not have been buying because it's clearly peaking. It may not have been the ultimate peak, which it looks like it was for this cycle. 68 looks like it was the peak, but that's not when you buy, when it's rocketing up. When everybody hates it when people are saying, will Bitcoin go to zero? When people are crying in the streets, kind of like now, that's probably a good time to buy. That's not some deep, complex analysis. It's a regurgitation, different version of what Warren Buffett says. When people get scared, I get greedy. When people get greedy, I get scared. It's the market fear and greed. And if you follow crypto markets, there's literally now a fear and greed index that you can follow, which I love because early days, I had none of these tools. Just trying to figure out how do we actually 
actually hold and take positions so that we don't lose our shorts in this volatility. Follow the greed and fear index, and that'll get you pretty close to when you should be doing. That was so good. I just, I want to, I still want to ask you about Ethereum mining though, because, and sorry to go back to Ethereum mining because you moved on brilliantly, but it feels like Ethereum mining is very different than Bitcoin mining because in the Ethereum code, there is this difficulty bomb that needs to be forked out by the Ethereum foundation, the centralized development group periodically. And so in Bitcoin, I've heard it said that miners don't control the chain, they work for the chain. But in Ethereum, it occurs to me from the outside that miners don't control the chain. Miners are almost held hostage by the chain, traumatized by the chain. Like it feels like Ethereum is pretty clear that you can mine for now, but we're going to kick you to the curb. And that's what proof of stake means. So as a miner, do I have it wrong? Or how do you look at that? And what's the future for mining on Ethereum with proof of stake on the horizon? The future is uncertain. So if you're buying servers, you're taking hopefully an 18 to 36 month position on those servers. If you understand the capital cost of mining, in simple terms, you put about half of your capital cost into the infrastructure and about half your capital cost is into the servers, whatever server you're running. Just done it enough times, it always essentially breaks down. 50% of your cost is your servers. 50% of your cost is the capital infrastructure to build the place to run. So what server you pick, you want to get 18 to 36 months of return at least. I don't see that that's ever been determined. Like even going way back with Ethereum, we never self-mined Ethereum because I never knew like on top of all of the volatility and nascent emergent attributes of the markets in general, I never knew with Ethereum when is the big switch going to happen. On top of all of that volatility to have that additional volatility when I could mine Bitcoin, it's got all that market volatility, but nobody's talking about turning off the switch for viability for mining. That was one big reason why we never got into it and still don't. We'll run machines for other people. So we host clients that have Ethereum at scale. We don't self-mine Ethereum. The other reason we didn't get into Ethereum early on is because GPU mining, it's better than it was, but it's still really glitchy. It takes a lot more data center technician interaction to keep it functioning. And ASICs, well-built ASICs, which are multiple options now, they just run. So it was really a, how do we scale most efficiently? ASIC servers just scale way more efficiently than GPUs do. So how much longer is mining a viable business strategy for Ethereum? I, it doesn't appear anybody knows. You also mentioned that you mine Zcash. And that's really interesting to me because actually early in my Bitcoin journey, I heard an NPR piece about the Zcash ceremony, you know, because Zcash requires a, there needs to be an initial secret. And you know, this is kind of, a, this was a flaw in, in the early Zcash implementations. And so Zuko uh, and other people involved in the project, they performed this ceremony of buying a new computer, putting randomness into it. And then during the course of this ceremony, the NPR correspondent who was following them, her phone got hacked during the ceremony. Oh, wow. And it was so creepy and, and interesting. But the Zcash is kind of an interesting project because there's definitely been some novel cryptographic research around zero knowledge proofs. At the same time, Zcash seems to have had some serious issues. First of all, social, because there's a company behind it. If Zcash was ever used for anything particularly useful, and I don't think it has been because it's not common on darknet markets. Well, I mean, I would just go over and arrest Zuko, you know, I mean, he's right over there. Seems uh, pretty easy to shut this thing down. But uh, but apparently there is real value in what they've created. And I point 
point to the fact that Paul Stork's first drive chain project, uh, which is running on a testnet build, is actually a Zcash clone. So that means there there must be something there. But how do you mine Zcash? Is it an ASIC coin or how does that work? I love listening to you analyze the viability of the crypto project itself. So viability, potential viability, and shortcomings of Zcash. I find that fascinating. And then it doesn't really impact my business decision to mine Zcash. So if you follow markets for crypto, I call it page one of altcoins. So you go to coinmarketcap.com, which is kind of where I think everybody goes. It's an easy way to follow the markets. So the page one, you scroll down and to page one, that's the page one altcoin, pretty much all I pay attention to. And if you watch markets, altcoins are an exaggeration of the market. So if you want to capture outsized returns during an up market, altcoins tend to exaggerate up and they exaggerate down. So do server prices, by the way. So if you're looking for marginal returns without marginal risk, you find an altcoin as a miner that you can mine as efficient, aka has an ASIC. So Zcash, you can mine with an ASIC server for Zcash, Z15, now current model. And you aggregate them and you wait for the market due to supply, demand, disruption for Bitcoin to drive it up. And then you wait for all the other altcoins to go past Bitcoin, go faster, and you liquidate. That's really why, because it's an efficient way to mine an altcoin that actually slingshots faster past Bitcoin in an upcycle. And it provides a marginal return without marginal risk. All of our listeners who've dabbled in alts and are upset about the market crashing, you can send your complaints to Malika. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not a proponent for any coin other than Bitcoin. If somebody says, "What crypto do you think the world ends up using?" Well, I think we end up using Bitcoin for exchange of value. Maybe Ethereum for a contract settlement and funding mechanism. Maybe Ripple for interbank settlements. I don't really know, but Bitcoin because of its attributes and because of its lead network size and market dominance. That's the one I'm really hanging my hat on and our activity backs that up. I've been looking for a critique of my Bitcoin thesis ever since I got into Bitcoin, and I see I will not find one here. No. Do you think we'll see international settlement of energy contracts in Bitcoin in the next three years? At no. least one? No. Too early. Not even one? No. Do you think that the Federal Reserve will hold Bitcoin on its balance sheet future? I believe it will. I also believe that the federal government will end up determining that having a certain percentage of the Bitcoin network in U.S. territory or territory that the U.S. controls will become a national security trust. I've heard that opinion before. I agree with you. This is another conversation, but it seems like there is a growing disconnect between policy that's concerned about climate change, about electrification, and the perception of proof-of-work mining, mainly Bitcoin mining. As someone who works as a Bitcoin miner, as a conventional data center hosted data center operator, do you have a short answer to that? Just for someone who might not have an opinion yet on the issue. I have a lot of sympathy for ESG proponents and power industry in general and government regulators in general that have a problem with Bitcoin and its footprint. It's because it's moving so fast. It's faster than people understand and faster than regulation can form around. And that creates you know a lot of FUD, frankly, just fear, uncertainty, and doubt for any newcomers because it's moving so fast. But this is just part of the journey. It's, it's the road to adoption. The road to adoption involves moving fast 
podcast if you're a technology, freaking out conventional institutions, and then hopefully sensible regulation eventually coming into place. But what's actually happening is the market forces are creating more and more efficient operation of the network. And my estimation is eight to 10 years from now, the Bitcoin market flattens out, which means the footprint of servers will flatten out. And then you have a pretty stable, full flat load of power consumption, which if you understand power markets, full flat, stable load consumption, it reduces volatility and instability in the grid. It doesn't add to it. So eight to 10 years from now, it's actually going to end up being viewed and understood as an asset to the grid and not a liability. I think we'll leave it there. Malachi, thank you so much for making time today. It's been a pleasure being with you. Likewise.